right. All right, everyone, it's good to see you. We are ready to begin. Hi, Chuck. Everyone have uh, our latest installment, Winter 2021. Um, same picture, different color to the front. Uh, this set of materials will take us through the uh, uh, second Sunday of Easter, I believe it is. Yes, where Jesus appears uh, in the upper room. So it's the second Sunday of Easter, the Sunday after Easter. And then the third installment, which pray uh, for me, will be Good Shepherd Sunday through the summer. So, and if that's successful, then at least the rough draft of everything will be done for the revisitation of editing and adding other materials to it. So thank you to uh, Sherry for pulling together all these wonderful pictures and uh, made the final selections yesterday. I apologize to you. I did not, it, uh, it didn't register with me that we're in the week of Epiphany and Sunday this week is the Epiphany story. We never actually went over that. So we'll, we'll spend a few comments on it today, since especially I encourage the use of the lesson kind of throughout the week. So uh, tomorrow is actually uh, the date of the Epiphany. Beth, here you go. Do you have your Bible? Okay. So let us uh, begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, by the leading of a star... You made known your only begotten Son to the Gentiles. Lead us, who know you by faith, to enjoy in heaven the fullness of your divine presence. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Uh, what I'd like to do for uh, a few highlights from the Epiphany is to take you through the questions and answers, I mean, uh, right below the central thoughts, um, which describe the epiphany as a celebration of how Jesus is revealed as the Christ of the nations, the Savior of all people. And so it's in Matthew's gospel, how wonderful, the gospel that is sometimes cited as the gospel to the Jews, or for the Jews, that the Gentiles are the ones who worship him in chapter 2. In chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the, the details, the sordid details of the sinful ancestry from which he descended, and then in chapter 2, these magi, these wise men from the east come and worship him. It's in Matthew that you have so many of these Old Testament references that would have been understood by a Jew. It's in Matthew's Gospel that you see that the promise made to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, is highlighted. That's Matthew's Gospel to the Jews that does that. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, go and make disciples of all 
nations, all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to see those things, how each evangelist, under the inspiration of the Spirit, crafts this theological catechesis, completely historical, but accenting theologically what's going on in the events, and in Matthew's gospel, drawing upon the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Matthew's the first gospel in the, the first book in the New Testament. But I draw your attention, and you just have, can listen to this, remember what the first book of the Old Testament said. Um, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Uh, one of the points I like about the Star of Bethlehem documentary is it goes to that Genesis and says, when, when God says, let it, there, those lights in the firmament be for signs and seasons, the argument is made, and I think it is spot on, that the signs announcing the birth of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and so forth, were already hurled into existence and planned from the foundation of the universe. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with contemplating the idea that this appearance of the star that led the Magi was this confluence of uh, three planets uh, that came together and showed this particular bright manifestation. The wise men, the magi, were astronomers as well as mathematicians and so forth. And um, uh, so they're seeing in the night sky as it's, it's coming together a confluence of things that they had never seen before or that was particularly unique. All right, so if you go down, epiphany means uh, to be revealed. So if someone says, I've had an epiphany, that means they've, they've realized something uh, that has come to them, a great truth, and so forth. So the epiphany season celebrates the um, revelations of who Jesus is and of what he came to do. Uh, so the Christ child born in relative obscurity in Bethlehem is then in the epiphany season announced to the world. So you have January 6th, the wise men are led by the star. They travel perhaps eight, 900 or more miles. Uh, you have in the uh, baptism of our Lord, John the Baptist revealing him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who fulfills all righteousness as his public ministry begins at his baptism. You have then the wedding in Cana of Galilee where in John's gospel it is recorded as the first sign transforming water into wine at a wedding as a sign of the new life and the new creation that he came to, to inaugurate. In the Garden of Eden, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the context of that first marriage, Adam and Eve, sin and death entered into the world. Now at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, he shows himself to be the redeemer of fallen humanity. So you see those things happening. And then the transfiguration um, is happening toward the end of Jesus' ministry 
when he leaves the Mount of Transfiguration, he sets his face to Jerusalem, where he is then crucified for the sins of the world. But in the Transfiguration, you have Moses and Elijah, the primary prophet, Moses, foundational for the Old Testament, and a significant latter prophet in Elijah, uh, appearing with Jesus. And Luke's gospel says that they were discussing literally his exodus, uh, but it is often translated, and not incorrectly so, his decease. So that Moses and Elijah are talking to him about his death, which is his exodus, because by the death of the Passover lamb, uh, the children of Israel were brought into freedom. So he is the true Passover lamb, his exodus out of slavery into freedom. Okay? So all of these epiphanies, right, during the epiphany season, we, we are, have been using and probably because now I've reached the point in my ministry that I'm just going to be a crusty fuddy-duddy. Is that right, Eric? Sounds right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're using the one-year series, and we have been, and we're probably going to continue to use it. There's nothing like the one-year series that captures the historical uh, flow of the liturgical year, the seasons of the year. Um, and especially when I'm trying to encourage the congregation to make use of such things as the congregation at prayer, daily Bible readings and so forth, to have that anchor, you know what you know, the first Sunday after the Epiphany is, you know the second Sunday is the wedding in Cana of Galilee and so forth. It, it, it becomes a solid anchor. Uh, in a three-year Sunday lectionary, you know, you, you get something as a first grader, second, third. You don't come around to that again until you're in fourth grade. So we get to repeat these things over and over again. But this year, um, because of where Easter falls, you know, Easter, the dating, the, the, the Sunday of Easter always varies. Because it's relatively early this year, the epiphany season in the one-year series ends up being three Sundays. The baptism of our Lord, first Sunday after the Epiphany, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, second Sunday, and then all the, already we're at the Transfiguration, the third Sunday. The Transfiguration is always celebrated, and then the Sundays between the baptism of our Lord and the Transfiguration drop out depending on how Easter pushes things forward. Okay. So let's talk about a few things from the Epiphany and see if you have any questions there. Um, it is important, the reason I went to the Genesis material about the stars for signs and seasons, in addition to talking about God planning this from the foundation of the universe, is also because the wise men are led by the star, but not apart from the scriptures. Let me repeat that again. The wise men are led by the star to look for the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, who would be the savior of all nations because they are guided by the scriptures to interpret the night sky. This is critically important. What scriptures? The scriptures of the Pentateuch, which were the most important books of the uh, of the nation of Israel. Uh, Persia is the land, today it would be Iran or Iraq, it could have been, is where they came from. 
who was taken into captivity uh, during the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and so forth. When these captivities took place by ancient conquering nations, they took the prominent people, the scholars, you know, the well-educated, the important politicians and so forth, uh, the special artisans. They, they gutted the countries of their the brain power and so forth. What would they have taken away with them captive but the books of the Pentateuch? And so um, some other lesser prophets like Micah uh, in chapter 5, which foretells the Bethlehem as the birthplace, they perhaps didn't have access to, you know, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. But the Torah, that's foundational. If you don't have anything else, you at least have the Torah. And in the Torah, there's a couple of places. I want you to go down um, what is revealed in the Epiphany, that second question that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God and the Savior of the nations, promised to Abraham in Genesis 22, 18. Uh, in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's from the sacrifice of Isaac incident. We heard it at the Lessons and Carol service on Sunday. And then um, there is a reference to light of Christ, Isaiah 60, which is the Old Testament reading for the Epiphany. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Okay? He uh, shall not walk, he walks with me, shall not walk in, the, in darkness. If you move down, uh, do you see the, uh, what did they mean by the expression, the king of the Jews? You see that question? Uh, that Jesus was the Messiah or Christ. It's the same thing that Pilate is saying when he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? King, Christ. Okay, because Christ means anointed one. The kings were anointed. So that's what, what they're asking. How would they have known about the prophecies concerning the coming of the Christ? Well, from the Old Testament Torah, the promise made to Abraham, in your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. The Torah would have been brought to Persia with the Jews during the Babylonian exile. And then this passage is critical. What would have caused them to believe or interpret that the appearance of the star signaled the Messiah's birth of the king of the Jews' birth? Numbers 24. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, which is uh, uh, the staff of the king, shall rise out of Israel. So that couplet, you know, a star and a scepter, is, uh, you know, referring to not to two different things, but what is the star announcing the appearance of the scepter or of the king of Israel? So you can imagine what, what Magi did, the school of the Magi in the ancient uh, Babylonian kingdom, these were, like I said, they were mathematicians, they were astronomers, and they studied ancient texts. That's what the school of the Magi did. 
Daniel himself was a magi. He was a wise man. And he was a scholar. And as you know from the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel, as well as his colleagues Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were put in important positions of authority. Why? Because they had smarts. They had skill. They were well-educated. Okay? So sometimes you think of the ancient world as being, you know, cavemen or something, Neanderthal knuckle-draggers. That is not true. Uh, they knew a lot. They were smarter than I am, and they had access to ancient texts. So I just think it's important to link the understanding that they had about the star to the scriptures that interpreted that phenomenon. And that's very important for us as our, in our faith as well. Jeremy? Even without computers. Cindy? Not, don't confuse astronomy with astrology. Okay, so that's what I was getting yeah. at. So at some point I thought, but that was not what they were. No, they weren't astrologists. So, uh, not to say that there, that there isn't paganism in the ancient world, you know, there, there absolutely was. But uh, to be an astronomer and to, you know, chart the planets and the constellations and so forth is something that they, that they did. And, and, and what astronomers would tell you is there are regular patterns that occur. And who was, who was one of the greatest um, uh, astronomers, mathematicians that ever lived? He was a Lutheran. Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler. And it's Johannes Kepler's formulas that can be fed into a computer and determine the night sky at any point in history from any place in the planet. The point about the computer, again, the Yeah. Right. Right. So when in, in uh, Micah 5 down, where is this prophecy, you know, that in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, that was Micah 5, chapter 2. What's interesting in the Matthew account is uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, the citation, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you shall come a ruler. This is a classic incident where an evangelist recasts the citation. Because if you go to Micah, it says, but you Bethlehem, though you are the least in the kingdom. But not anymore. See, that's the whole point, not anymore. You are not the least. So the birth of Christ has made obscure Bethlehem no longer obscure but has put it on the map uh, forever. Out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. All right, so uh, some, some thoughts there. The other, uh, the other thing, now Isaiah 60, I already mentioned, was, was uh, critical. On the second page, there's a rather long answer about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is where the idea of three wise men or three kings came from because of the three gifts. I don't know how many there were. I, I think three is a lovely number, so it, I have no problem saying three, but there could have been more. There was certainly some sort of entourage. But the number, you know, we three kings of Orient comes from the gold, frankincense, and myrrh commodities. 
But I'm more interested, not in the number of wise men, but why the commodities were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here again, if they're studying the Torah, which helps them interpret the sign, and they're talking about worshiping, the Torah, I mean, we're most familiar with Genesis and Exodus. We're a lot less familiar with Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But those are the books, particularly the end of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, where all of the detail about tabernacle worship is explained. And gold was critically important. It overlaid the Ark of the Covenant inside and out with pure gold. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, I don't know how many ounces of, of gold it would be uh, in today's you know, measurements, and the value would have been astronomical. Uh, and then there were other gold vessels, okay? Frankincense. Incense was used, and there was special incense that could not be used for domestic purposes, you know, in the home, because it was the incense used at the altar of incense in the tabernacle when the people would confess their sins and pray for Messiah to come. So they offer gold, they offer frankincense, and then they offer myrrh, which is perfumed oil used in the anointing of priests. They would anoint, you know, the, the anointing of their right thumb and their right big toe and their right ear and so forth, and the anointing also of kings and of prophets. So all of this came from uh, the Torah as well. So they're offering, my point is that they're offering gifts that are appropriate, reflecting what they learned about from the Torah. All of these things, when Matthew says, that this stuns me on, com I, I, I don't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't poo-poo uh, people who write commentaries and these theologians, but, but there are commentaries that will say whether, whether the wise men actually believed in Jesus or not, we cannot say. Well, that is patently ridiculous because Matthew says they worshipped him. That word is reserved for certain things, and one of them is believers who trust in Jesus. Okay? And the, the gifts that they offer and the things that they do are confessing their faith in him as Messiah and fulfiller of... Why would you... I mean, if you didn't believe in him, why in the world would you go a thousand miles on a camel to worship him? Just to say hi out of curiosity? No, it doesn't make any sense. All right. Well, I could go on and on and about the Magi, but you can come to church tomorrow. Uh, the judge Samson in Judges is called a Nazarite, a, a Nazarene. He should be called a Nazarene, wholly dedicated to the Lord's service. Okay, we're in Matthew's gospel. Let's turn to chapter 3, and you have the baptism of our Lord. Let's see, was there anything I wanted to highlight about the picture? Well, it's just a nice, you got the, the little lammies there and the Magi with their gifts, okay. And then in the baptism of our Lord, you have Jesus in the water with John, and then the Holy Spirit descending in a form of a dove. So isn't that great? 
But go to Matthew chapter 3. I want to take you to the text itself. Verses 1 and 2 sets up the ministry of John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I focus on those two verses for a couple of reasons. Number one, the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist was one of preaching and then baptism. He preached calling the people to repentance, which means an acknowledgement of their sin and their need for the Messiah. The idea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is not the only thing he said. That's a shorthand for the content of his preaching. Okay? So he didn't just walk around, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a shorthand for the content of his preaching. Okay? He called Herod uh, to repentance for having his brother's wife. And he was imprisoned because of it. So verse 1 and 2, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's a preaching ministry. That's how he's preparing. Then skip down to verse 5, because our, our purpose in singling out these verses leading up to the baptism of Jesus is to set up the understanding of the baptism and part of the reason why John was baffled by Jesus coming to baptism. Verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. So the people of Jerusalem, Judea, and all around the Jordan. And were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Why did they come to him for baptism, confessing their sins? Simple question. He said, repent. So why are they coming to be baptized, and why are they coming confessing their sins? What are they seeking then? Forgiveness of sins. In what? In baptism. Okay, I, I, want to, I want you to see the obvious. They're coming to him confessing their sins to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? They're coming to him. Yes, they heard the call to repent. They're coming to him confessing their sins to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Are you with me? Now, repentance is a faith word. So his preaching is calling them to faith. And faith that acknowledges two fundamental truths. I am the sinner and I need the Savior. Come and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of him whose way I am preparing. Get the idea? So the sweep of his preaching ministry, his preaching, showing them their sin, the call to repentance, draws them to baptism for the forgiveness of sins and points them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand in this Messiah whose way I am preparing. Get the idea? That sets up then, if you move to verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Every other person that came to John for baptism, and John had his disciples that helped him with this. He didn't, he didn't single-handedly do all the baptizing. But every single person prior to this that came to John to be baptized was a repentant what? Sinner. Coming to baptism for what? The forgiveness of sins. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. What is John confessing? 
I'm the sinner. And what is he saying about Jesus? You're not. I have need to be baptized by you. And are you the sinless one coming to me? I don't get it. Now, this ought to make you feel good. Because here you got the son of a priest who is called the greatest prophet who doesn't get it. Shouldn't that give you a little bit of comfort? Sometimes I come to Pastor Bender's catechesis and I don't get it. Don't feel bad. John the Baptist had Jesus come to him to be baptized and he doesn't understand why. I have need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him. What is going on? Well, righteousness is an important word here. When Abraham was called to faith, you know, I'll make of you a great nation, I'll bless those who bless you, curse them who curse you, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It says Abraham believed God, and he was accounted righteous through faith in the seed of Abraham promised to him. So Abraham is declared righteous. Did that righteousness come from himself? No. Who did it come from? It came from God. It came from God's son, the seed of Abraham, who is righteous. Why? What did the seed of Abraham come into the world to do? To die for what? For sin. To die for sin. When I say to you, Nikki, I forgive you all your sins in absolution, I am declaring you to be what? For whose sake? And I'm saying that Nikki's sin belongs to Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness belongs to Nikki. Get the idea? So Jesus does not come to baptism because he has sins of his own to be washed away. Quite the opposite. He comes to baptism to have the sin of the world imputed to him. And yes, imputed is the proper word. It's the language of justification. God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us, and he imputes the sin of the world to Jesus. Yes, baptism is a transaction. It's why the catechism says, what asks the question, what benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, which might just as well be said, it works justification, whereby he is declared to be the sinner and we are declared to be righteous. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Now, I, I'm going to come right back to Matthew 3, but if you will... Turn forward in the New Testament to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The guy who did not understand at first 
understands after Jesus is baptized. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him. Now that's a strange expression because John knew who Jesus was. He's his cousin. He's preparing his way. But when John says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, even though he knew him. What he's saying is he didn't understand. Isn't that what he's saying in Matthew's gospel? I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? It's as if he doesn't know him. He doesn't know how he would accomplish the very act of salvation that John was proclaiming uh, Jesus would give. So verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified, this is the Son of God. The next day, John stood with two of his disciples Looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now that's what he starts saying. After Jesus is baptized, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you can come back to chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. What's going on here? This is more Old Testament stuff. And here this son of a priest, the son of the priest, well, he was a chip off the old block. It took Zechariah a while to have things register with him too. The scapegoat, the substitutionary lambs, upon them was, I can't do it, I have to do it to, it has to be a male of the, can't be a female, okay. Upon the scapegoat was imputed, that language is deliberate, it's from the Torah, the imputation of the congregation's sins to the scapegoat. And then what happened to the scapegoat? It was driven out into the wilderness, the idea, the sin is imputed to the goat, and then it carries the sins away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, literally carries the sins of the world away. So Jesus is baptized to have the sin of the world legally, forensically, imputed to him. So That's how John then, he prepares for his uh, ministry by calling people to repentance, to have faith in him, and then at Jesus' baptism, it is revealed to John. He fulfills all righteousness by being the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world upon himself and then goes to the altar of the cross to be slaughtered in place of sinful humanity. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the, at the heart the significance of Jesus' baptism. Is he anointed by the Holy Spirit there? Yes. That anointing proclaims him the Christ. Is he declared the Son of God there? Yes. Uh, does the Father speak approval of his Son? Yes. Look at what happens. 
Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open, literally ripped open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. So that's the voice of the Father, in whom I am well pleased. So the righteousness of God, and this is very important, the righteousness of God is that God himself offered up the lamb for the burnt offering. The Lord will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. That God the Father offered up his son into the death of the cross, that's the righteousness of God. St. Paul talks about this in Romans where he says, talks about the, uh, the righteousness according to the works of the law, but now a righteousness of God apart from the works of the law is revealed, even the righteousness of God in Christ who is offered up as the propitiation or mercy seat for sin. Okay? Where does this come from? The Lord will provide for himself the sacrifice of Isaac, right? What Abraham says to Isaac. So all of that comes together in the baptism of Jesus and John, John, you know, I'd like to talk to him someday and say, you know, you know walk, walk us through this revelation, this epiphany. See, is that, that's what an epiphany is. John, who didn't get it, even though I did not know him. I mean, and, and, and I, loved, I loved that phrase because no matter how much he knew Jesus, apart from him being the substitutionary sacrifice for sin as the Lamb of God upon the cross, he didn't know him at all. You, you get the idea? To know Christ is to know the Son of God as Lamb of God, as atoning sacrifice, as our justification. That's what we say in Advent. It's from Jeremiah in two places. This is the name by which you will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Okay? And so my favorite phrase in the Greek is dikaiousine tu theu, the righteousness of God. And auto in Christ. Okay, um, so notice the Trinitarian manifestation here at the baptism of Jesus. The Father speaks from heaven words of divine approval. The Son is in the water, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So here you got the, the Holy Trinity miraculously revealed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And then that miracle of the Holy Trinity is what is revealed and at work in holy baptism, not only at the end of Matthew's gospel, but in every baptism that takes place. So the supernatural reality of baptism is proclaimed in the baptism of Jesus. And so I've never understood those who argue that baptism is a mere symbolic thing. Here at Jesus' baptism, God, the, the heaven is opened. The Father speaks words of approval. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And Jesus is there in the water. The same thing happens then to us. For Jesus' sake, the Father speaks words of divine approval. You are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit is given. And we are baptized into Christ or en Christo, 
We are in Christ in baptism. He's in the water. Okay? All right, you can read the rest there. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Dikaiusine. Tutheu and auto. Yes? No, no, he wouldn't have said that, I, I, but I don't know. Uh, in the name of him whose way I am preparing, you know, what have you. Jesus codifies the formula liturgically in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even in the Acts of the Apostles, where it talks about they baptized in the name of Jesus, that does not mean the formula. To be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to be baptized into Jesus. Okay? Into Jesus' name, which means the Lord is your Lord and he is your salvation. So some people argue that, well, there's two formulas for baptism. I baptize you in the name of Jesus or I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I say no. That it, to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to be baptized in the name of Jesus or into the name of Jesus. That's, that indicates the content of a Trinitarian baptism, as this certainly makes clear here. Polly? Did Matthew ask what? He asked what John would have said. Or, or baptizing any of the people he baptized. What kind of words did he use? And I say, I don't know. In Acts chapter 19, there's the group of people that Paul encounters. And um, they claim to be baptized into John's baptism. And then Jesus said, John indeed, uh, uh, did, did you, uh, John indeed baptized uh, for repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they said, we haven't so much as even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, well, into what then were you baptized? John clearly taught the Holy Spirit. So whatever they had, it was some wacky banana thing. That's why, G that's why Paul asks the question catechetically. It's like I, someone might claim to be baptized as a non-member, and they come, and I'm trying to find out about them. And I'm going to ask them questions. Do you believe that you're a sinner? You know, do you believe... Uh, I mean, whom do you trust for your salvation? Were you baptized? Yes. What did they use? Well, I don't know. What did they say? Well, I don't know. What do you believe? And I, I quiz them upon what they believe or what happened to them. And if they don't know anything about God, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit or what Jesus has done for them, they probably weren't baptized in a Christian baptism. So then I would baptize them, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm going too fast. Cindy.
Well, you should see Jesus' ministry in a whole different light than, than this guy who walks 10 feet off the ground and levitates all of the time. Some of the pictures that Sherry and I were looking at, which we dismissed, had those kinds of images about Jesus. In his state of humiliation, he gets downright dirty. He gets his hands dirty. It's the part I love about the, not the V part. I always make those broad, sweeping generalizations. The most, my favorite. How many mosts and favorites can you have? But the Passion of the Christ movie is really good at portraying Jesus. I mean, he's a man. But that Jesus is ripped. He's a carpenter, you know? I mean, he's not this effeminate character. And he gets dirty, his hands dirty. So in his ministry, yes? Do you want to make an editorial comment? Yeah, in Matthew's gospel, what is the event that immediately takes place after his baptism? He's driven, he's driven by the spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he's there 40 days. We have that in here, too. Um, it's not uh, today's. Let's see. Yeah, uh, and this is why we chose. This is why we chose this one. Okay, look at the image of Jesus with the 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 domineering figure. There is Satan trying to coerce him. Some of the pictures that we encountered had this, here's Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Matthew says he fasted 40 days and afterwards he was hungry. Duh! You know, so um, it was a real humiliation. And then, and then what does he do to the lepers? He touches the lepers. What does he do to dead bodies? He touches them. All of this renders him ceremonially unclean. But it's a catechetical thing. He is teaching that he has taken upon himself the sins of the world. Yeah. And, and it, because... Um, this is characteristic a lot of Roman Catholicism, why you have to have the Immaculate Conception of Mary, because he wouldn't be conceived in the womb of an ordinary woman like Kayla Kittemeyer. Okay? No, Mary was a sinner, as ordinary and as sinful as any of the rest of us are, from whom Jesus received his flesh. Now, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he is without sin, but truly human, but of Mary's flesh to take the sin of our flesh upon himself. So there's no distance there. And so you see, you know, uh, the, the woman with the flow of blood, you know, touches the hem of his garment. Who touched me? So forth. Joe. You're talking about how uh, Jesus put, uh, put on our flesh, just reminds me of Jesus' prayer about that. Um,
I think he probably said the Son of God took our flesh and wrapped himself in it. I, I, don't, I didn't uh, listen to that one, but the idea that, um, that the Son of God truly became one with our flesh in, in order to become one with our sin. And that's what 2 Corinthians says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. I mean, that's a radical thing. God became the sinner for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And slaughtered, yeah, the atonement. That's right. Atonement takes place right there when uh, the Lord provided the covering for them. That's right. So the slaughter of the, because they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. He covered them with the animal skins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Because the life is in the blood, and the life is poured out uh, in exchange for our lives so that we might live. See, our, our blood is not shed. His blood is shed. So that our blood isn't shed but we receive life from his blood. You know, why, why have we offered the sacrament more during the pandemic? Because there's life in the blood. In the blood of Christ, there is life. Okay, Matthew 17. Great picture here, I think, for the transfiguration. Oh, wait a minute. We have to do the wedding in Canaan, Galilee. Sorry. I... I I got crazy. We'll come back to Matthew's gospel in a second. But the wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's interesting in Luke chapter 2. The angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds and they were sore afraid. In John, there's no nativity narrative. But at the end of this miracle, Jesus manifested his glory. Verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. It's the same glory. The glory that shone around the shepherds was the, the glory of God's condescending love in the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh, lying there helpless in the, in the manger of Bethlehem. In the wedding of Cana of Galilee, he manifests his glory in the transformation of water into wine to show himself as redeemer of marriage, of family, of our humanity. So in the, um, in the text, chapter 2, John is very good at this uh, numbering thing. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. <laughs> On the third day. When you hear that in Christian vocabulary, on the third day, what? He rose again to life from the dead. That's what this is. So this is a miracle of resurrection. It's a miracle of new life. Okay? Water into wine. It's a miracle of new life, the resurrection of marriage. So there's a baptismal motif, because we die and rise with Christ. And there's this wedding motif, which is... a an eschatological thing. You know, we're looking forward to the consummation of our salvation. Our salvation isn't consummated when we die. 
Now Joe's with Jesus. You know, what do you do for fun? Yeah. Okay, there, Joe's with Jesus riding his bike. Now, the consummation of Joe's salvation is not when he dies and his soul goes to be with the Lord. The consummation of salvation for all of us is the resurrection. When the bridegroom returns for his bride, the church, and we're all caught up with the Lord in the resurrection. That's the consummation. Okay. I have nothing against heaven. Don't misunderstand me. That's not the point. But, but we're not, it's not fully consummated yet. And I use the term consummated deliberately since we're talking about a wedding here. The consummation of the wedding feast. So there's a baptismal resurrection and wedding motif going on here. Yes? Plagues. Yeah. yeah, what is the, um, after the staff goes down by Moses and turns into a snake, and then he picks it up again, and after his hand into his bosom and it comes out leprous, what's the first plague? Water into blood. Here it's water into wine. Wine and blood are used uh, in many cases synonymously. Wine is the commodity which conveys, obviously in the sacrament, the blood of Christ, which gives life. The flowing of blood unto death, but the flowing of his blood leads to life. So anyway, they were, uh, the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no Wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. What is the next time in John's gospel that he calls his mother woman? At the cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother of John the Apostle. Because this sign, it's called a sign that manifests his glory, it is fulfilled when he, as the second Adam and the bridegroom of his bride, the church, leaves his mother to be joined to his bride, the church, who at his crucifixion is formed from his side the blood and water, the blood and water that flows forth. Do you get the idea? So here is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. When he says, woman, my, he's not scolding her. It's like saying, woman, do you realize it's not time for me to die yet? It is not time for me to take to myself my bride, the church, in the consummation, okay? Woman, my hour has not yet come. You know, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with him, what he's going to do. Because his purpose is to be the second Adam, the heavenly bridegroom, who redeems his bride, the church, 
by the, the ultimate sacrifice of love upon the cross, that his relationship, he calls her woman, not because he's, it's a disparaging term, but he doesn't say mom, mother, he says woman, because he is leaving his mother to be joined to his bride, the church, created from his side. Now let's see, Joe, you... One. Well, it, 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 but it, but it is it is preempting a change in relationship. See, I'm going to the Genesis passage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay. So when Jesus dies upon the cross and he appoints John to care for his mother. His relationship with her is different. No longer his mother-son, but now she becomes a member of his bride, the church, for which he is the bridegroom. So there's basically two weddings taking place. Well, there's two. There, this is the sign of the ultimate wedding. Well, that is what's coming next, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, so you, you have this, the, cel the earthly celebration at the time that this heavenly celebration is taking place, this glorious union. Well, it's called three weddings. You've got the marriage of Adam and Eve, which ends badly, right? They bring sin into the world. And then we have this wedding at Canaan of Galilee where he transforms water into wine and says, I'm not done with them. I've come to redeem humanity. Even though through the first marriage, sin entered into the world and with it, death and corruption. Or corruption and death, I should say it in that order. I have come to redeem humanity. And how will I do it? I will be what Adam wasn't. And my bride will be what Eve wasn't. And Mary teaches us what the church is. Whatever he says, do it. See, she articulates the, the voice of the church. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Because his words are life. Okay. So, um, and there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So what is that, 120, 180 gallons apiece? Jesus came to him and said, they have no grape juice. <laughs> hmm. So he, <laughs> this is wine, or it becomes wine. Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now. So fill the water pots and then draw them out. This is death and resurrection language and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water 
that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. And that, remember it's in John's gospel, most especially when we looked at the passion, where people say things, they don't realize what they're saying, that are profound truths, like Caiaphas. It is necessary that one man die for the people. How true that was, but he didn't realize how true it was. So here, everyone serves the good wine first. We cannot imagine what the consummation of the redeemed creation will be when Christ, our bridegroom, comes again in glory. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. You know? So we, we have no... Our, our conception of eternal life and communion with Christ is so pedestrian and, and fraught with sinful ways of thinking. You know, where heaven... Yeah, writing about, or where heaven is endless rounds of golf or something like that, as opposed to this communion of eternal love with and in our Savior. You know, we, we can't quite, fa what is it going to be like to have no corruption of sin? Every man serves the good wine first, but you have saved the best to last. And so it's an eschatological theme there that the consummation, the first wedding, remember, said it ended badly. This wedding becomes a sign of the third and ultimate wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding. Wasn't there? When Jesus rose from the dead. And, and Mary Magdalene then shows us what that's like where she, you know, throws her arms around Jesus which was not a sin to do. She actually, you know, preempts what we will all do in the resurrection. Okay, so those are some thoughts there. I'll let you read the rest of it because our time is fleeting. I had a strange day, so some of my thoughts are probably flying all over the place. Uh, Matthew 17, back to Matthew's gospel, the transfiguration of our Lord. Ah, yes. That's a great picture. That's what I started, and then I realized I had skipped over the other one. The, the great picture, you have Jesus in the center. You have Moses on the left, well de depicted there. He's got the two tablets uh, of stone with the law written on them. And Elijah on the right. And you've got Peter, James, and John down below. In Matthew 17, there's 28 chapters in uh, Matthew's gospel, but the, um, the, the passion of our Lord, the, the Holy Week, begins in chapter 21. So we're getting close to... Uh, we're in the final year of Jesus' ministry. After he comes down the Mount of Transfiguration, he sets his face to Jerusalem. Um, 
I just mentioned John saying, you know, after three days or on the third day. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. After the sixth day comes the rest and resurrection, see? So, um, I mean, who could make this stuff up, John? You know, this, if this isn't divine inspiration. So Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. The word is where we get metamorphosis. He was metamorphosized before them, transfigured. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So we talked earlier about his humiliation. Here we're seeing not yet his exaltation, but we're seeing who he really is as son of God in the flesh. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Luke's gospel says specifically about his death. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When did the father first say that? At his baptism, here now at his transfiguration, beginning of his ministry, and now as the end draws near. And then this word is added, hear him, hear him. In Deuteronomy 18, we had this uh, Old Testament reading, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, him you shall hear. So you've got Moses, the foundational prophet of the Old Testament, the first prophet, and Elijah, representative of the second latter prophets. And essentially, this converse with Jesus is, this is the prophet, hear him. And that's what the Father says. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So he echoes the concept of righteousness, that he is well pleased with his Son. Why? Because he has become obedient as the sin bearer, the Lamb of God, even to the point of death. Again, this is Matthew's gospel. So the baptism of our Lord and the transfiguration of our Lord linked together. He has come to fulfill all righteousness in his death upon the cross according to the scriptures of the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Hear him now, for he speaks words that give life. And uh, you can see the idea of a tabernacle there that Peter wanted to stay there. Wouldn't we all want to stay there? But the only way that they could be with him was for him to come down from the mountain and to go to the cross. Kayla. That's not those prophets in their bodies, though, right? It's a, a vision of them. The question, did you get the question? That's not the prophets in their bodies, is it? 
Um, and I would just say this. I prefer to go just with the text. Moses and Elijah appeared. Um, it is also in Matthew's gospel, however, Kayla, that when Jesus dies upon the cross and there's an earthquake, the bodies of the saints come. So I, I'm not putting this in the dogmatic category. That's why I'm hesitating. I, I like to say, thus says the Lord. But let me say this, that just as no one is saved from their sins apart from the death of Christ. So those Old Testament saints, you know, Abraham was accounted righteous. That's 2,500 years before the birth of Christ. For Jesus' sake, he is righteous then. Okay? Um, so um, if someone wants to make a point that uh, Moses and Elijah are bodily, present at the, the resurrection of the saints, just as it did at the, at the crucifixion, I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to get overly excited. I'll just say Moses and Elijah were there. Now Moses died, and Elijah was taken up. Yeah, God buried Moses' body. What, what I'm trying to say is that what I'm trying to say is the, the salvific work of Christ, death and resurrection, transcends time and reaches backward and forward. That's what I, I'm trying to say. So uh, there's no way there's no way, for example, Elijah taking up in the chari chariot bodily could be uh, in the presence of God and defiled with sin. So do we want to call that the resurrection for him? Um, he's without sin, so okay. This is highly irregular, okay? Uh, the only other time that I'm aware of that um, uh, someone who was dead uh, comes from the dead to make an appearance is Samuel, uh, who appears to Saul in the Old Testament. So it's highly irregular. It happens a couple of times. Samuel appears, now Moses and Elijah appear here. In the case of Samuel's appearance before Saul, that was not good news for Saul. That was, that was definitely bad news for him. Here, this is certainly good news as he manifests his glory. And, and you are certainly seeing this, Kayla, when, when um, uh, over against the scribe, the Sadducees that did not believe in life after death. I mean, this is a square... Between the eyes to them, you've got Moses and Elijah. You know, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, if you keep 
keep after with me if you'll persuade me that they were resurrected. Okay. Let's look at the, uh, the central thoughts. The transfiguration of Jesus' body, which shone like the sun in brilliant white light, shows him to be the eternal Son of God. Second bullet, the appearance of Moses and Elijah with Jesus demonstrate that the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus' ministry, death and resurrection. The focus of our faith is upon Jesus only because he is the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased because he has willingly suffered and died for our salvation. Now in the text, that's seen most especially in verse 7 and 8. Jesus came and touched, they were afraid in verse 6, he touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now this idea of fearfulness, the glory of God, where did the glory of God manifest itself in the Old Testament? In the cloud, at the ark, and so forth, and at Mount Sinai. But if you approached it, or you touched the ark, you died. Here he touches them. Do not be afraid. So you see how there's a total reversal. And it shows him to be, um, as it says, Savior. We are to hear only Jesus for guidance, comfort, peace, and salvation. In the transfiguration of our Lord, the disciples beheld the future glory that awaited them in the resurrection of the body to, incorporation, to incorruption and immortality in Christ. And I think you, have to, you do have to say that about the appearance of Moses and Elijah to that degree. So I included for you a prayer on the Bible story as well as the liturgical collect for the transfiguration. In the prayer, it says, Heavenly Father, you proclaim Jesus, your beloved Son, when his body shone with your eternal glory in the transfiguration. Give us ears to hear only Jesus, to delight in his word, and to know that through his suffering and death, we shall rise with him to eternal life in the resurrection on the last day. All right. We're out of time, but we have one more lesson uh, from Matthew. All the lessons except the wedding in Cana of Galilee for, from Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, so you're a few chapters after the um, transfiguration. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Um, all of these, I meant to say this earlier, all of these upcoming stories, like the, the Epiphany, which is this week, we celebrate it tomorrow night. Next Sunday is the baptism, that's the story. That's Sunday's gospel. So what I preach on, what they hear in church, will also be the story. Wedding in Cana of Galilee in church, that's also the story. Transfiguration, it's also the story. And then Septuagesima, which is the first Sunday of near Lent after the transfiguration, is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And it is a, you've heard uh, grace alone and scripture alone and faith alone, okay? So you have, in the Jesima Sundays, people have made the comment, 
that Septuagesima, grace alone, that's the labors in the vineyard. Sexagesima, uh, the, the sower and the seed, scripture alone. And then the blind men who see and the forecast of the suffering and death of Christ, faith alone in quinquagesima. So grace, scripture, and faith. You are not getting those other two stories, though. Um, it'll be Jesus forgives the paralytic when we, it'll be the first lesson that we go at, at next time in February. And then uh, Jesus celebrates the Passover. Why those? Those are catechism stories on the uh, office of the keys and confession and then the sacrament of the altar. That's why those stories are, are in there for those Sundays coming up. But otherwise, we've got the Sunday morning gospels are the same as the Bible story for family catechesis. Did I confuse you completely with what I just said? Okay. I'm looking at Chuck, and I'm thinking I... I'm seeing his brow furrow there. And did I, I, do you understand? We're, the Sunday morning gospel reading, which I'll preach from, is what you have for the stories until we get to the sexagesima two weeks after transfiguration. So this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So you get paid for your work. Except in this parable, they don't get paid according to their work. You see, salvation is not by works. It's by grace. That's the point. So every uh, worker gets paid the same thing. Every Christian gets paid the same thing, salvation. Because salvation is a gift, not by works, but by grace. So the central thoughts, no one can save himself from the problem of sin. Salvation is by grace alone and not by works. Jesus alone died for our sin to give us his gift. The kingdom of heaven is the gift of salvation in Jesus. We are not only saved by grace alone and not by works, but we also live the Christian life by the strength of God's grace alone. We are his workmanship. We rejoice in the gift of salvation in Jesus whenever a sinner comes to faith in Christ. I like the picture there because the landowner who has his back to our eyesight, um, I mentioned, if you heard it earlier, it's like he's wearing a chasuble, like he's a pastor. And then you see his uh, lieutenant there doling out the the payment, and you look at the looks on their faces. Getting the same thing. We've borne the full heat and burden of the day. And this man said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and he, five minutes later he's dead, he gets the same gift of salvation? That isn't fair. So that is, uh, there's a lot of passages quoted in, including from Ephesians, in your meditation on the Bible story. But I think it, it the, that Jesus would use a parable where people are paid ostensibly for their works 
to illustrate that salvation is not on the basis of works is actually accented by the fact that they all get the same thing. So that it's not on the basis of their works. And one of the great lines that, um, that uh, highlights that is verse 13 through 15. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, go your way. I wish to give to this last schmo the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? This is so politically incorrect, it's fantastic. Or is your eye evil because I am good? One of the catechumens today, I'll close with this, I won't, I won't mention what his name is. <laughs> but he asked, if you're just being paid minimum wage and you should get a lot more money, is it okay to not do your best? Are you teaching him these things? <laughs> And I said, uh, that is under the seventh commandment, stealing. I said, no, that's stealing. I don't care if you get pay, paid a nickel. You do your best whether you're paid a nickel or you were paid $100 an hour. You do your best. Anything less is stealing. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, uh, look at how Jesus worked. He was a slave for people who were wholly unworthy of what he worked to do, but he gave it his best. So how can we give anything less? So, but anyway, that had to do with vocation and stealing under the seventh commandment. But I'm glad he asked the question. I didn't mention his name, did I? <laughs> okay, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your gift of grace and salvation to us in Jesus. Forgive us for boasting in our works. Teach us to live each day by faith in Jesus alone. And help us to rejoice in the gift of salvation whenever any sinner receives the kingdom of heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, thanks for coming. See you again in February. Turn off my.